Hello pod pals and welcome back to Best Girl Grip. I'm your host Nicole Davis and this is the podcast that navigates the film industry through the lens of the women doing just that. I'm going to get right to the intro today because it's late and I've managed my time poorly. So without further ado, this week's interview is with Lizzie Gillett, the director of the feature documentary department at Passion Pictures, whose credits include the Oscar-winning Searching for Sugar Man, Bart Layton's The Imposter, James Marsh's Project Nim, and more recently, The Rescue. Lizzie recently produced The Territory, a feature documentary co-produced with an indigenous community in Brazil about their fight to protect their ancestral land in the Amazon rainforest, which won the World Cinema Documentary Award at this year's Sundance. Lizzie also produced Lady Boss, a feature documentary directed by Laura Ferry about the trailblazing life of novelist Jackie Collins. We talk about her first foray into producing feature docs by making the climate change documentary The Age of Stupid and how that led to the 1010 global campaign to cut carbon emissions how crowdfunding played a big part in financing that film before crowdfunding was even a thing, and whether she felt any pressure uh, to replicate the success of that. We also discuss how she arrived at Passion Pictures, what she's responsible for, and what it means to direct a department, uh, supporting the filmmakers she works with, and what she's learned along the way. Lizzie was a brilliant interviewee and someone I thoroughly enjoyed speaking with, so I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation. This is episode 106 of Best Girl Grip. So I'd love to know, uh, did you go to university? And if so, what did you study there? Yes, I went to university in New Zealand and I studied politics and a bit of philosophy and a bit of film, uh, interestingly, um, but it was primarily a politics degree. So film was a kind of nascent interest for you that you sort of thought, you know, maybe that's something I could do or would like to do? It was. It was more kind of theory of film than anything kind of practical. And it was just, you know, when you're, when you're young, you're interested in so many different topics. But I did love the analysis of films and, yeah, the theory of how different films, you know, had been made and, and kind of looking at films with a much more focused and critical eye. I did really enjoy that. And did you have any sense of what kind of career you wanted to pursue after graduating? Was it in the realm of politics or it wasn't anything to do with that either? I remember thinking or telling people I would either be an academic, which mm. is pretty much what my parents did, or a psychiatrist, but then I found out you had to go to medical school and I'm like <laughs> aw- awfully squeamish. I think or a politician. Well, yeah, I'd, I'd love to know whether you had like an aha moment or a particularly kind of strong feeling where you're like, I, I want to go into documentary and you felt like that was a calling for you. Yes, I was at a big theatre in Dunedin, New Zealand, which is a small town, but like a 2,000 seat cinema. And I was there with only about three or four other people watching um, a, a documentary called One Day in September, which is made by Passion Pictures. And I just couldn't believe it. that It was very entertaining. It felt like a movie, but it was also very political. And I that's always kind of what I wanted to do. And it just struck me like this, this is what I should do. And then it took me 20 years and I finally got a job at Passion Pictures. But I, I remember having that aha moment. And one other aha moment I had was working in a local TV station in Dunedin mm-hmm. and going into the control room where they live broadcast the news and just loving the idea of cutting between the cameras and going to the news reporter and kind of everything coming together and then being communicated in a succinct way. I just... I was completely hooked from the second I went into that that newsroom. I'd love to know then how you pursued that career once you'd identified what it was you wanted to do. You know, how did you take any particular steps to trying to enter the industry? 
I met someone at a party uh, in my hometown in New Zealand and she said, what do you want to do with your life? I'd had a few drinks and I said, I want to make films that change the world or something probably equally pretentious. <laughs> and she said, well, if you mean it, come on Monday morning at 9am to Channel 9, which is the local TV station. And I was, I didn't really know if it was serious or not. I didn't really know what power she had. But anyway, I turned up on the Monday at 9 o'clock. AM and it turned out she had no power she was actually just a free like, freelancer <laughs> but I think they felt a bit sorry for me and so I was kind of taken into the newsroom as a as a volunteer I was like in my probably I was like 20 or 21 for a month and then the boss of the station came along and said well who are you what are you doing here and I said well I'm volunteering I really want to learn about it and he said you've got until tomorrow write me a letter of what you want to do what you think is important in a film and, I, and so I wrote him a letter and he said, no, this is no good. Do it again, because it was basically a CV. And he said, you know, I really want you to explain what, why you would want to work in a TV station. And I did that. And he gave me my first job. And I was a news reporter for local TV. I had to find and present and edit three news stories a day. And this is, in the, you know, in the old days where we had tapes that once you made a mistake, you had to go and kind of cut it in again. And that was that was just amazing, you know, to be given that opportunity, you know, to have a salary. I couldn't believe it. I mean, to get a monthly salary and to work in this newsroom with two older uh, journalists who were really brilliant at their job. And they kind of taught me about making news and making entertainment as well um, on the job. I think it really speaks to not being shy, though, about what it is you want to do. Like even at that young age, if you're not quite sure, but just to have a grandiose or ambitious idea to tell people because you never know how they might be able to kind of facilitate or or help you into that kind of next job. I'm also wondering whether the kind of news background of your career, has that informed how you approach making documentaries, do you feel like? I think possibly. I mean, it was quite quickly that I got sick of working in news because what I found is after about six months, you know, every day was the same and you would kind of do such a such a big job and work so hard on a story and be so proud of it and then it would be gone on the evening news and you know my mum my mum would watch it and be really pleased but I'm not sure how many other people did and then you'd start the next day again okay what's the story so that gave me a yearning to do something that had uh, more impact I think and Mm. that would stand the test of time and that really had something to say so in a way it kind of pushed me towards feature docs I think more uh, than encouraging me to do news-based stories. And can you then describe your path to becoming a producer on feature doc you know how did you chart that path? Well, I moved to London from New Zealand, uh, thinking that I was very experienced having worked in a local TV station as a, firstly as a news reporter. And then I was actually given my own sports show for a year. So I had to fill an hour of sports content every week. And so I'd done a lot of making content. But when I arrived in London, you know, nobody had heard of Channel 9 New Zealand. And I didn't really have any contacts in the industry at all. And so I had this awful year where I applied for 300 jobs and didn't get any of them and I was skint you know and I had to I worked as a secretary in in the university kind of doing administration for a whole year and I just was thinking god this is so hard and I started off applying for producer jobs and director jobs and then I kind of went down and down applying for you know assistant jobs and personal assistant jobs and even runner jobs and because my experience was in New Zealand nobody could really you know relate it And during that year, I was also getting quite political. And I read an article that Franny Armstrong, who's the director of great documentaries, uh, that I I went on to work with her. But I read an article Franny wrote in The Guardian, and it talked about her film called Drowned Out, which is in India. And it had a date for the premiere at the Curzon Soho. Uh, And so me and my partner went, and I just thought, again, this is exactly what I want to do with my life. And then I stalked her on the internet (laughs) 
and begged her to let me work for her for free. And she did. And then after quite a short time, me and her raised money together. And then we went on to do uh, The Age of Stupid together and to kind of run a production company for about 10 years. Amazing. I mean, let's talk about The Age of Stupid. That came out, I think, 2009. And am I right in thinking that crowdfunding was a big element of that film? And it was also quite... I mean, it wasn't as ubiquitous as it is now. So how did you identify that as being something that you could do? And how did you go about, you know, um, creating that campaign? Yeah, it was really interesting because we didn't pitch that film to any commissioners or any broadcasters. And that was born of Franny's previous experience with a documentary called McLeibel, which had been commissioned by the BBC. But then, as I understand it, they had pulled out and she ended up with a finished film on her hands and no set way of distributing it. So she had gone about distributing it herself and had a huge amount of success. So based on that learning, Franny was really determined to make this film independently. So she had this grand vision, a big global climate change documentary, and no one that we knew had ever done crowdfunding. We'd never, it wasn't a term then. And we sat at her flat in Camden and we wrote on a piece of paper, we knew that the budget of the film would be quite a lot for us. We had in mind that half a million pounds, but we thought if we could raise 50,000 pounds to get going, that would make a good start and so we thought well if there was a hundred people who would put in 500 pounds each then we would have our 50,000 pounds and so that's how it started and we wrote to about 200 people we knew and invited them to a secret event where we were going to pitch our next big project and they were invited to buy shares in the project essentially Mm -hmm. and that first event we raised 37,000 pounds in one night We've never had anything like it. They all gave us checks and our bank account, you know, our bank balance just, it was amazing. And we headed off immediately to Paris and started shooting one section of that film. And then we expanded that crowdfunding plan so that people, you know, we basically increased the amounts. So at the beginning, it was £500 for a certain percentage of the profits. Then it was £5,000 and then it was £10,000. And we raised half a million pounds to make the film and another half a million pounds to promote and distribute the film and this is, this is you know, we started this in 2005. So it was before, I think four years before Kickstarter launched. Mm. There, was a, there was an argument on Wikipedia about who, did, you know, came up with, or, you know, crowdfunding. But I think it's been part of the film industry for a long time. But this kind of organised way of doing it was quite new. And essentially people loaned us money to make the film and we paid them back in the event of a profit. And we went on to every year for 10 years after the film was made, you know, right an account for our funders Uh, Mm. we had 350 funders about what the film had done who'd seen the film but also about the money that had come in and then we shared it out amongst half of the money was amongst the funders and half of it was amongst the crew many of whom worked at very very reduced rates so we couldn't have made the film without crowdfunding it had incredible benefits for us you know the freedom the speed with which we could get money the support network this huge group of uh, advocates when we came to our publicity campaign it has challenges as well crowdfunding certainly the administrative side of it is really onerous and keeping up with 350 different people who you do get to know quite well is hard Mm. and also not having you know an institution supporting you is difficult because you don't have experienced execs and you don't have protocols and production processes uh, that that you do get with, with a bigger broadcaster Given that lack of institutional support and the fact that this was your first serious foray into feature producing, I'm wondering how you approached that. You know, how did you discover what kind of producer you were and also what it was you were having to do? It was very organic and 
I just tried to help Franny achieve her vision. And in a way, it, was, it wasn't it was really just producing a feature documentary because her vision was to really have a big impact on climate change. So there was the film, but there was the offshoots, then there was a campaign. So it's only really been since then that I've kind of been a bit more boundaried about it. But ultimately, as a producer, I always try and help the director achieve their vision. And that's what I did on Age of Stupid. Uh, and, you know, some days... I was doing very menial tasks and doing all the receipts and the VAT returns. And then the next day raising, you know, a hundred thousand pounds from funders and deciding what crew to send to what country or, well, the two of us did a lot of the filming ourselves as well. So it was a real baptism by fire. Do you feel like being a good producer is about, you know, being able to sometimes suck that up and, and, and transcend into kind of different realms and do so many different, you know, jobs and aspects? Because, yeah, it's kind of got that jack of all trades vibes. You're not really an expert in any one thing, but it's a, an ability to mutate and, and change your skill set, I guess. I think certainly as you're getting going, that does help. But as you get more experienced, I think it is sensible to put boundaries around things and and see what you're good at. And that's been a real pleasure for me coming to Passion Pictures because I can do the things I'm good at, but there's lots of other, there's a much bigger team who can do all the other parts of production that you need, that you need help with. And also it means that I can be involved in a much larger number of films rather than being the point person of every single element on the age of stupid. Mm. So I think it does help at the beginning, especially if you're a woman. But as you go on, yes, it's good to kind of differentiate and start to have a more defined role. We'll definitely come on to Passion Pictures and what you do there and how you arrive there. But a couple more questions about The Age of Stupid. I'm really interested in the fact that it came out yeah, in 2009, which feels to me like prior to the glut of climate change documentaries, you know, around the time of An Inconvenient Truth. But certainly we've seen a lot more of them now. And I'm wondering kind of what your perspective on how effective documentaries are at disseminating issues around the climate crisis. You know, you spoke about a campaign there. And is it kind of a prerequisite that you need to kind of almost do this impact producing alongside? the film itself and has that changed do you feel like they're less effective nowadays just because we're so saturated it's so interesting I mean at the time climate change wasn't in the news like it is now I remember about a year before we finished the film my friend called me in a panic and said climate change is on news night I've recorded it for you he recorded it for me on a VHS because it was so unusual and an inconvenient truth came out and we thought oh no that's the big climate change documentary but Franny quite wisely said that, you know, you need lots of documentaries about all big topics like war and love. You need a lot of films about a topic. And in a way, An Inconvenient Truth was quite helpful for us because it laid out the science and it meant that our film could be more about the emotional reaction to climate change. You know, that film had a huge impact on people. 10 million people have seen it globally. We've had case studies done on the actual impact the film has had, which in conjunction with many NGOs helped change uh, coal policy in this country. We know that hundreds of community groups were set up. We know that lots of individuals took actions in their own lives. And the film went on to spawn a big campaign called 1010, which was about helping the UK cut 10% of its carbon emissions in 2010, which, you know, had a, was, it was really big. It had all the councils across the country cutting their emissions and Tottenham Hotspurs and the Science Museum were all cutting their emissions by 17%. But... That is a huge amount of work. And it meant that Franny and I couldn't get on with making another film. You know, we both worked on that campaign for two years, pretty much after we finished the film. And amazingly, that campaign that was born out of the film is still running today, 11 years later, has a full-time staff. You know, it's morphed and it's changed, but it is it remains that that base. People saw the film and said, what can I do? And we tried to design a campaign uh, to answer that. 
Of course, there's now a much bigger world of impact producing and it's become a job in and of itself. And I have got a different perspective on it now in that I don't think one film can speak to all audiences. So most people making social impact docs always try and say, oh, we're, you know, we're reaching a new audience or we're not preaching to the choir, which great, if you can do it, that's that's fantastic. That is really hard. And also there is value to be had in preaching to the choir, in motivating and inspiring people who already know about climate change, already want to take action, but just need a little bit more of a push. So I don't think it should, you should try and kind of meet every single audience where they are. You just, you simply can't do that. And for me personally, uh, I found that my impact is greatest when I'm doing a job that I feel really inspired by and fulfilled by. And for me personally, I've decided that making a number of films with social values at their heart is my purpose. And so I'm not into running big impact campaigns afterwards, although I'm happy to, you know, advise. And if people want to do those on films that I work on, certainly that's, that's wonderful. And then given the success of the film, kind of, I feel like commercially, but then also in terms of socially and environmentally, did you feel there was certain pressure to sort of replicate that success? You know, particularly when after the two years of running that campaign, you and Franny went back to filmmaking, did you kind of think, okay, we've got to, we've got to mount another massive life-changing film? How did you approach that? It was overwhelming because Age of Stupid was five years of our lives. You know, we really, we travelled around the world making it. Then we spent, you know, years promoting it, distributing it. As I said, running the social impact campaign, keeping in touch with the funders. And so I couldn't really imagine, I didn't really know how else to make a film. And it did feel overwhelming. And we both had children after Age of Stupid, which I think was partly that we kind of felt, well, we've done one really big, hard thing and we've had (laughs) some impact on climate change and now's the time to kind of take that opportunity to have children. And so I went off to New York and took a much more regular job where someone else, you know, was paying me in in an organisation. I think I was, like, there was a lot of responsibility in the age of stupid days. It was just really me and Franny at the centre of it and, you know, managing quite large amounts of money and other people's money and dealing with all the legal stuff. And so I think we both wanted to step back a little bit from that responsibility. And then we did, you know, we did try and mount a much bigger series after that, which was called Undercovers, about the police in this country who slept with activists and uh, some uh, one police officer had a baby with an activist. And that was a huge undertaking, again, and incredibly ambitious. That one is still in development. Uh, so it wasn't, you know, mm-hmm. as, as kind of immediately successful as Age of Stupid, but we do hope to make that at some point. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I think I was kind of questioning, well, how... How, how would I do another age of stupid, especially once you have children where, you know, you need to be available, you need to have a better work-life balance. I, I didn't really come up with a good solution. No, but I think it's interesting to consider, I guess, definitions of success because development, you know, can, even though it's not visible to the world what you're working on, I think you can kind of have modicums of success in, in unearthing interesting stories and interesting characters. And actually, you know, that, that brings me on to the fact that in your Spanner Films bio, the website, you talk about kind of one of the joys of the job for you is, is finding main characters for those stories. I'm wondering if you can kind of speak to that a little bit, you know, what is that discovery process like and how do you identify that kind of main character? character energy yes it's so much fun it's kind of like meeting long lost family in a way or you know friends from your childhood that you haven't seen in a long time I think it's you're meeting people and you're trying to assess how fascinating are they how many layers of depth do they have but also how much does their story convey the themes or the points of the film that you're trying to make and it is, you get very, very close to people, you know, during Age of Stupid, there were five characters around the world and them and their families. We spent 
huge amount of time with them. And then more recently on the Jackie Collins film, we got to know Jackie Collins's three daughters really well. And they're now really good friends of mine. You know, I go swimming in the ladies pond with one of them <laughs> and remain in contact with them, even though professionally, you know, we don't necessarily need to be in contact with them. And it's such a privilege because together you're unearthing something more authentic and more true than you could have separately. I think that's what's so satisfying about it. And that's why I love the producer-director combination too, because me on my own could never achieve what me and a director together can achieve. And it's the same with the characters that you feature in film, in documentaries. They can't tell this story without you and you can't tell it without them. So there's a a really powerful symbiotic relationship. And then when you're at a screening and people see the film and kind of get the emotional truth of what you've been trying to convey, it's so fulfilling. Yeah, it's really, really amazing. Mm. I want to put a pin in that idea of the uh, the director-producer relationship and perhaps talk about it more in context of Lady Boss. But to kind of chart your journey to there, I'd love to know how you joined Passion Pictures in 2018. You know, what prompted that move? Was it someone saying to you, we have a job, you know, come to us? Or, or you know, was it more organic? I had wanted to work at Passion Pictures since I was 21. I saw one day in September in the cinema in New Zealand and I met John Batsack through Age of Stupid. Uh, so he was an executive producer actually on the film. And so it was it was produced in association with Passion Pictures. So I knew the company and I just loved the films that Passion made. You know, so many of them, Project Nim and The Imposter and all, all of Passion's filmography, if you look at it, there's something very special there. There's something very high-end and also it's a combination of art, entertainment and politics that I loved and so I had remained in contact with John Batsek who at the time was running Passion Pictures throughout the years and then I did a course um, called Raising Films a, a course run by Raising Films sorry and on that course you have to put up your quest on the on the wall and everybody else's quest was I want to run my own production company or I want to work on things that I've you know that really mean something to me And my quest was I want to work at a production company owned by somebody else because I'd had that responsibility and I really wanted to learn how documentaries are made when when you're making more in in a larger number but still remaining at that quality level. And uh, John gave me a short-term stint as a development producer here uh, and then that kind of expanded into being head of development. And then more recently I've kind of evolved that role into really heading up the feature documentary side as passion has expanded. I'm wondering, this is probably not that easy a question to answer, but I'll give it a go. Uh, I'll, I'll give it a go asking and see see what we come up with. But what is the differential, you know, when you're making something kind of within an institution and within a company that produces, you know, a lot very quickly, but to a high standard, as opposed to producing your own documentaries? You know, you said, I want you to learn how. What have you learned? I've learned the value of having a team who can specialise in different parts of a production process. And also I've learned, you know, the value of having a company backing you who knows what it's doing in terms of, you know, HR and accounting and all the administration that goes around a film. Because back in the days of Age of Stupid, you know, it was me hiring people and it was me trying to figure out, well, should they be a freelancer or should they be an employee? Should they pay their taxes? And really what I saw in hindsight was that probably half of my time went on things that you know, I wasn't that good at and I didn't enjoy doing and certainly other people would be better at. So what I've really loved about coming to Passion is I do the bits that, you know, I love and I think I'm really good at 
And then there's a much bigger team who can all fulfill those functions that they also enjoy. And together you get things right. And so it's a bigger team, but you can also work on a much broader number of productions, essentially. You referenced there that your job title now is director of feature docs. What exactly does that entail? And also, you know, the title director gives some sense that you're steering the ship. How do you go about doing that? How do you kind of mould maybe the stories that Passion are looking to tell? My role at Passion now is really developing and producing these high-end premium feature docs, which have some kind of underlying social values. And often these films are director-led. Sometimes it's me and a director talking for a long time that comes up with these films. Often these films are funded from multiple partners, or they might be independently financed. Uh, sometimes they're fully funded by you know, an SVOD network. But really, the films that we're trying to do, and, and that I'm always looking for in the feature doc scene, they feel big global stories that people would pay money to go and see in the cinema. They feel like films that would premiere at an A-list festival. They're important films in that, you know, they do take years. They always take about two years. So you have to love them so much that you're willing to work on it for that long and that you can genuinely persuade because a huge part of my job is persuading people to you know work on these films um, that you can persuade other people that it's worth their while and looking back on it you, you want to do films that have some meaning in the world whether that's artistic or, or social social values underpinning them that's interesting because I want to circle back to Lady Boss, the Jackie Collins story, which doesn't immediately strike me as something that maybe fits that mould. So I'm wondering how you came to that story and why that was something that you wanted to work on. It's interesting, isn't it? Because Lady Boss doesn't seem on the face of it like a political film, but it actually is a very political film. And what I love about Lady Boss is in the same way that One Day in September had a political story, but was very entertaining. And it was a very glossy film for its mm-hmm. time. Lady Boss is a fabulous fun, bonkers, look at the life of Jackie Collins. But underneath, it's actually quite a deeply feminist message. And it's a film about women, you know, even very strong, very successful women are vulnerable and can have terrible relationships. It's also a film that hopefully shows you can be whatever feminist you like. You know, don't let anybody, woman or men, tell you that you can't be a feminist. You know, you can wear lipstick and enjoy sex and still be a feminist. And it also tells the story of Jackie Collins who was sneered at, you know, uh, because of misogynistic culture. And her writing, even though it was hugely successful, was kind of laughed at and looked down upon. And we felt in the making of the film that that's often the way uh, content created by women is looked at. So it doesn't seem like a political film, but it, it is really. And in the, I think in the making of it, I hope that when people see it, they feel inspired and empowered about the joy and the struggles of being a woman, you know, you can sell 500 million books, you can be super wealthy and have all your dreams come true, as Jackie Collins did on a career front, and be a fantastic mother, but also have flaws and be vulnerable, be treated, you know, badly and, and have these quite problematic relationships uh, in your life. I'm intrigued as to how you approach making a documentary about someone famous, because obviously that comes with maybe a lot of of its own politics. And was it always for you really important to have that relationship with Jackie's daughters and to kind of have their sort of input and approval? You know, would you have gone about it in a different way had you not had that? Typically, Passion, we do often work with the estates, the family, families and family estates, because we're always looking to make a very authentic film. And often that's, you know, the contributors Uh, within those groups but also the archive and with Lady Boss it was actually the daughters who initiated the film and so they contacted John Batsack at Passion and asked if he would be interested and I was working here under him in the department at that time and so he 
asked me what I thought. And, you know, quite quickly, and, and Laura Ferry, the director, had read Jackie Collins. We were looking to do something with Laura Ferry, and she'd read Jackie Collins at school under her desk. And so and, and immediately she had this wonderful vision for the film based on kind of I, Tonya meets Jennifer Lawrence in Joy, which is, you know, <laughs> a woman with a mop, like a mop business, just go, going about it so determinedly. And so we did... When we were pitching the film, we did think we would have a lot more celebrity interviews in it. Uh, you know, Sylvester Stallone and Al Pacino and all sorts of people, Sandra Bullock and Oprah Winfrey. But as we were making the film, I think Laura was very wise in seeing that this should be a film told by people who knew and loved Jackie. So it really is people, her friends, her family, her colleagues who tell the story. And I think that's why it, it is an authentic portrayal of Jackie Collins. So that, that's how we went about it. We worked very closely with the family. You know, they have, I think they gave us four and a half thousand pieces of archive that we, you know, photos, videos. Mm. Uh, they had 350 VHSs with Jackie appearing on different TV shows, but they didn't know what those TV shows were. So for an archive researcher, it was mm. a huge job to watch these mm. things and then find where they came from. And they also, you know, thousands of photo albums, all of Jackie's. They'd kept everything, all of her lists her manuscripts and and they allowed us access to everything so that was a, an incredible asset in terms of making the film you mentioned Laura Ferry there the director I'm wondering if you can speak to that relationship that you established with her you know how you go about setting boundaries but also discovering what it is that she needs and how you're going to function and provide that for her Working with Laura was great. I don't know if we ever sat down and formalised it in any way. It was very organic. It was like a friendship, you know, a very creative, collaborative friendship. And I tried to help achieve Laura's vision. And there was John Batsek as well. So it was the three of us working together really effectively on that film. And I was lucky enough to go on the shoots with Laura. And I think in LA, you know, we were there for 17 days for this the one major shoot and we talked about Jackie Collins from 8 a.m. in the morning until 10 p.m. at night, every every night, because we, we just found it endlessly fascinating, her story and how to convey this story. And so I love that when you have that experience with a director where you're both completely consumed, really, uh, by the work and by what you can achieve together. Um, yeah, and it was it was just a real privilege. I can't wait to work with Laura again. And then switching gears slightly, but thinking about another director-producer relationship, I'd love to speak about The Territory, which is a film that you've recently produced that is enjoying great success. I think it just won a prize at Sundance, which is very exciting. And it, it comes back into this theme of climate emergency, which you're, you're obviously very familiar with. So I'd love to know how you met the director, Alex Pritz, and how you approached doing a film of a similar theme again, and whether any of your learnings from The Age of Stupid fed into how you went about producing that film. I met Alex Pritz, who's the director of the territory, and his kind of lead producer, Will Miller, at one of those meat market things where it was at Sheffield Documentary, it was on Zoom, you know, the first lockdown. And I think I met 25 film teams in two days. And, you know, you're kind of trying to assess each other. And immediately, I was struck by the footage that they'd captured. They were probably halfway through at that time. It was so powerful. And I loved this idea they had of kind of deep access observational filmmaking with two sides of a land conflict so instead of it feeling a bit like an NGO film where we we're quite used to seeing indigenous people lose their land in films sadly you would have both sides of the story and you would get an insight into why these settlers and these loggers are encroaching on this territory and burning down this forest so I loved the vision and I could see that they were on a really good path they also had this really ambitious plan to raise the full budget 
without selling any of the rights, which is hard, but gives you a lot of freedom. And I'd done that on Age of Stupid. And so immediately I wanted to work with them. My experience on Age of Stupid was super useful for them because there's all sorts of things we did that were relevant to the territory. And within about a week, I think, after meeting them, Passion Pictures was signed up officially as a, as a production company and I was a producer on the film. You know, I wasn't hands-on in the way that I was with Age of Stupid or Lady Boss. I did my entire contribution for that film pretty much on Zoom, you know, from home. And what I really helped Alex and Will do is raise the money. <laughs> they are brilliant filmmakers and they just needed a bit of help and support and guidance in terms of they'd raised about a quarter of the money themselves from grants. And together I helped them raise that final, what, the, the three quarters that they needed and helped them really make those difficult asks when people, everybody kind of says, oh, it's great. Why don't you come back to us with a rough cut? But as a producer, you have to find that money to get to a rough cut. So I was able to be a little bit more forthright with potential funders and say, well, are you in or are you out? Because And kind of piece together a finance strategy that worked for the team. You know, the, the biggest thing I did really was, was raising the money, which I guess does go back to Age of Stupid, because that was a crucial part of that. And in, in very importantly, raising the money in a way that was that allowed the film's creative side to thrive. So the raising of the money, this is what I love about producing films, the raising of the money is creative in its own way. Of course, there's the creative element of the editorial and, you know, the look of the film and the editing, but the way you raise the money impacts on that. And so we needed to find partners that really got what we were trying to do. Mm-hmm. And we did, you know, Time Studios, Luminate and Real Lava and then XDR as well came on board and just 100% backed the vision that Alex had for the film. And, and it was just it was such a, such a pleasure to be involved with them, you know, much less hands-on than I've been in the past, but it was a good lesson for me in terms of now I'm getting a bit older and more experienced, you know, my contribution can be limited, but crucial. And that's really satisfying. Mm, yeah, that's interesting. I'm also wondering whether making a film during lockdown, you know, whether the financial landscape in documentary filmmaking was impacted at all, you know, whether it was more difficult to raise the finance during that period of time. Well, it's weird because there was in the initial lockdown, there was panic. Firstly, people were not knowing what was going to happen with the documentary industry. And then a mad rush for archive led content Mm. because you could do it in lockdown. And then overall, just a huge increase in demand because people are watching more content than ever before. Mm. And so for filmmakers like us, you know, there, there is more demand for content at the moment. And I've noticed over the last couple of years, there's a real yearning and there's a lot of success now with high-end premium feature docs that have social values underlying them that are independently financed and then acquired by networks later and so that's something you know that has been percolating over the last 10-15 years and so that's something that we're kind of honing in on now and my experience goes back 20 years you know with a age of stupid and so we're just kind of building towards that now and hoping to have a number of films that meet that kind of bar every year. I'm wondering how you go about meeting that demand. You know, if audiences are saying, or, you know, particularly going to see a particular type of film, you know, I feel like Free Solo and The Alpinist are kind of good examples of that sort of adventure film that suddenly it felt like it was popping up everywhere. But marrying that or balancing that with an instinct for what might make a good story, but hasn't necessarily been proven to be successful with audiences. You know, how do you balance those two needs of, yeah, I guess, creative and commercial? That is the joy of producing. Mm -hmm. And in a company the size of passion, we mostly go on instinct. We mostly go on, does one of us 
absolutely love this project. And of course, you look at comparables and you look at how other films have fared. But really, it's about do we love this project? Do we think this director can deliver? And are we in a good position to do the producing, you know, to raise the money and get the crew and run the whole production and deliver it and then make sure it's heard in the world? Because there's a large part of producing, a large part of my job that happens once the film is finished because you spend all these years making a film and if you don't put the effort in once it's finished, you know, it might it might get to festivals, it might get some press and it might get some awards, but it really might not. And so for me, you know, I really enjoy that process of, of the kind of publicity campaign and the festivals and ensuring that the film is seen by as many people as possible. Otherwise, what's the point of putting in all of that work? I mean, I want to hone in on that. It might not kind of have the success that you planned for it. So, and to drill into what it really means for a documentary to be successful, both for the documentary itself, but for your input, you know, for your own career, what does success look like to you? Well, for a documentary to be successful, in my mind, it needs to be finished, (laughs) which often they're not. And it needs to be seen, you know, and that can be, there's, there's a film I did before joining Passion called Magic Medicine. And It's completely, we did it completely independently. We didn't have any success. We didn't raise any money. We didn't, you know, get any of the broadcasters on board. And we released it ourselves with Dartmouth Films, who were brilliant in the cinema. And we had, I don't know, 35 packed out screenings. We got reviewed in The Guardian. And for me and the director, that was success at that time. Subsequently, Netflix have recently bought the film, which is wonderful because it means more people can see it. But we wanted to make the film and we wanted to show it at least to a number of people. Uh, clearly now it's, it's better that more people have seen it. So the, the film needs to be finished. It needs to be seen. And, and for it to be seen, you know, it has to have high-end craft. And for me, it has to have some point to it. And it's not to say that every film has to be a social impact film at all. It's just, does it have something new and interesting to say? I always want to see documentaries and make documentaries that the craft is as interesting as the topic and I hope that with Lady Boss, you know, we achieved that. And, and the same with the territory. In terms of, I mean, I shouldn't skate over the fact that we have all sorts of failures all the time. And I have loads of films that, you know, we've never raised the money for. Or very sadly, sometimes you make the film and it doesn't get seen. And that is heartbreaking where a director, producer, team have put their heart and soul into a film. And you know, it's quite rare, but it does happen where you can't find an audience for the film. Um, and and that, that is the worst, worst case scenario, I think. So then what about for you? Like, what does personal success mean for you? And I guess maybe tying back into the course that you did at Raising Films, you know, you said your quest was to work at another production company. Like, what would you say your quest is now? My quest now is to develop and produce, you know, a number of these big feature docs every year, you know, and I feel because I'm a little bit older and a bit more experienced now, I can be more targeted. I don't have to be the the full-time producer on all the films that I work on and kind of managing every single element of it. So that that's my goal for the next, you know, three to five years is be involved in a range of films, you know, and, and really help bring them to fruition and work with directors that I love and that I know have something 
amazing in them and help them birth that into the world. It's a bit like being a birth partner, I think. Yeah, film doula. <laughs> it is like being a film doula. That's a <laughs> um, We kind of touched on it briefly earlier, but I would love to know if there's something that you consider to be like the biggest learning curve of your career or, or something perhaps that you feel like you would have benefited from knowing earlier. I've had to work it all out on the way. And that's the reason that I kind of know things now is Maybe the thing I've learned is to be a bit more discerning, maybe, and try not to take on too many projects and and to give each one enough love. Because it is, you know, we've got this metaphor going of childbirth, but then also it is like having children. And each film to me is like a child. And, you know, as a producer, I feel like for some, I am the parent. For some, I'm probably an auntie. And But as you get to being a grandparent, maybe you're a bit too far away and, and you can't necessarily engage enough to really give your best on that film. So perhaps I've learned to be a bit more discerning and uh, not necessarily embark on things where I'm not 100% sure that I love it and that I can really go out and sell it. Because ultimately, as a producer, you're the one going out and persuading people to put money into this film or put their names on it or work on it. And if you don't feel sure, that's not a good position to be in. So I, I try and avoid that. And not to make you pick a favourite child, but is there a project that comes to mind as being something that you're proudest of or that you know, presented specific challenges that you, you really felt like you kind of had to put all of yourself into it to overcome? Each, each film is different. Each film is special and is just such an incredible experience to go on with the director and each one I've contributed to differently. So I wouldn't want to kind of pick one out, if I'm, if I'm being honest. And I suppose that's the benefit of being more discerning, it, you know, is that they can all have the capacity to change you or hold that you know, kind of special place, you know, as you say in your in your CV, is that you've you've gone to it for a specific reason. Exactly. And, you know, in Age of Stupid Days, I kind of needed to do that full five-year immersion on one project mm. to learn enough to be able to do what I'm doing now but I couldn't do that now because if I just did one film every five years you know well that that would be no kind of business model for any for any production company but also creatively and you know for my own career it wouldn't be satisfying so now it's yeah it's really nice to be able to work on a number of films uh there there is always a temptation to kind of be obsessed with the shiny shiny new thing mm. rather than dealing out the kind of legacy issues on, on older projects. Mm. So, uh, so that's something I have to try and be a bit more aware of probably. And then finally, I'd love to know if there's a film from a woman director that you think is a bit of a hidden gem or just something that maybe you think about a lot and return to when you're looking for inspiration. First thing that comes to mind is The Piano by Jane Campion. Mm. It's shot in New Zealand, so it means a lot to me. I think it's one of those films I saw when I was young and thought, yeah, it's great, but I didn't really engage with it properly and it's only now that I'm a bit older that I've re-watched it and just marveled at the way she's able to show not tell really quite deep feminist and other ideas and the power of the imagery and in documentaries that's that's where the trend is that documentaries are going to be more like movies now and that's that's what we always aim to do at passion you know the territory we feel like it's it's more in that vein where you feel like it's a movie like it's a it's a high-end film rather than certainly not a worthy documentary it's funny actually it kind of chimes with what you're saying about the craft needing to kind of match uh, the topic or the story and it feels like yeah Jane is always she's a master of, of marrying those two things together yeah she's a real inspiration Lizzie thank you so much for joining me today it's been a real pleasure to speak with you and yeah I've been thrilled to have you on Best Girl Grip thank you so much that was really interesting 
thank you for listening to this episode of best girl grip if you liked what you heard please do rate review and subscribe it really does help to get the word out if this is your first time listening there is a whole bunch of episodes to keep you busy wherever you get your podcasts but if you're up to date hold tight and i'll be back next tuesday with a brand new episode Thank you.